Well, good morning, everyone, uh, both uh, in the community online that's joining us at home or from your couches or maybe somewhere around the world. We're excited that you're with us. And then also a greeting to those of you who are right here in the room. It's nice to be uh, slowly moving back towards actually seeing faces. And what I've gotten so used to just like talking into the lens. In fact, they took it down. You guys, some of you didn't get to see it, but for a long time, there was a t-shirt hanging right under the camera that had a big smiley face on it. And that was just to remind me that there were actually smiling people on the other side. Now I actually have smiling, although you all have to do your part and actually smile. So work on that. Um, But my name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff and uh, excited to continue with you this morning in our study. Uh, This is sort of an ongoing series called Spring Training, which is a little tongue in cheek because it's, uh, you know, baseball season is almost upon us and spring training is sort of ramping up in the baseball world, which matters to some of us, but admittedly not all of us. But there is value in practice and in training. And and so in essence, we're using the title spring training, but we're talking about historic Christian disciplines. And we talked a few weeks ago about the fact that the word discipline can kind of freak people out. But what we're talking about are Christian rhythms, rhythms of disciples throughout the ages, things that are reinforced in multiple places in the Bible that then we can put into practice in our lives. Now, none of these are things you do out of obligation. None of them are things you do in order to earn some status with God. None of them are things that you do uh, in order to sort of make yourself, uh, uh, you know, level up as a Christian or whatever. It's n- none of that. Uh, there are things that you choose to enter into. They're all voluntary. Things that you choose to enter, in- enter into, both because the Scripture teaches them, but also because the followers of Christ historically have entered into these practices. And there is great benefit, both for us in our increase in our knowledge of God, in the, the way in which we worship, but also for sure in the way in which we accurately reveal Christ in our world. So each of us have a different circle. We got people around us that are looking at our lives and we have been called to reveal Christ. That's what an ambassador does to reveal the truth of who Jesus is in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. And these historic practices, I think more accurately then help us to reflect Jesus in a way that other people can understand and receive. So this morning we're talking about the practice of rest which is distinctly different than some of the other disciplines. Because with the other disciplines, uh, we've already in this series talked about listening, uh, the ability to listen to the Spirit of God, both through His Word and through... uh, we, We talked about prayer a couple of weeks ago. Last week we talked about fasting. Well, in one way or another, those are all kinds of things you go out and do. And hopefully our goal in the series has not just been to give you sort of an intellectual understanding of what these principles are, but to actually invite you to enter into these practices, to do some of them. So there's been some doing. And one thing that can happen with Christians when it comes to doing Christian practices is that it's easy for us to sort of tip over into a place of legalism or of striving, of just trying to do prayer or just trying to do fasting or just trying to do Bible study uh, for the sake of kind of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or being the little engine that could or whatever. It can kind of turn into uh, just sort of a rote activity, which we always want to stay cautious of. We talk about rest. It's actually the opposite of doing in some ways. And so it gets a little bit trickier. It's hard to to do it uh, because there isn't a tangible thing necessarily to go and do. In fact, what we'll see in our study this morning is that the practice of rest in some ways is about ceasing from doing. It's about stopping in your striving. It's about taking a step back from all of your efforts. And instead of doing or getting, it ultimately becomes about being with God, being with God. Now, if you're a parent or if you have ever been a child, which I'm guessing probably most of you have, uh, 
napping, right? I'm going to talk about napping this morning. So for those of you, I would like for you to wait in the midst of my message to nap until after I have con- like condoned that. So I'm going to give you permission. Please don't nap before I say it. Now is the appropriate time. That will hurt my feelings. Um, but with, with kids, you're trying to get them to nap. My wife tells this really funny story about when my son Jack was little. I think he was about two or three years old. And we could not get that kid to take a nap. Like we could not get him to just chill out and rest and lay down. The only way we could get him to take a nap was if you laid down with him, which if you've been a parent, is kind of nice. But if you have other things you need to be doing during the nap time, it's sort of hard because there's always a temptation you will fall asleep and then you're both taking a nap and you don't get all the stuff done you're hoping to do. Well, on this one particular day, she's laying down by Jack. She's trying to get him to take a nap. It's the middle of the day. And he finally seems to her uh, to have fallen asleep. He, his, the movement stills, his breathing changes. He's kind of turned over on his side and she thinks, okay, he fell asleep. So she starts to kind of, you know, disentangle herself. She starts to move stilly, quietly off the bed, try to step away. If you're a parent, you've probably navigated this yourself. She manages to get out of the room. And just before she gets out of the room to close the door, she notices out of the corner of her eye, just a Just the tiniest hint of movement. She's not entirely sure what's going on. It looks like Jack is asleep. But as she comes around and looks closer, he's actually laying on his side. Somewhere he's managed to get a ballpoint pen. And in these tiny little movements, he's writing all over the comforter, right? We had a white comforter. And he's basically just scribbling tiny circles in the smallest movement that he can so that she will think he's asleep while, in fact, he's still destroying our property, which is what he spent most of his time doing, right? It's interesting in trying to get us to rest. What we'll see this morning in our study is that it is God's desire for us to be people who stop and dwell with him, to be people who step away from our doing and our getting and actively engage in being children of God. But it's amazing to me how often in my life I will sort of go through the motions of appearing to rest while still secretly striving. Does that make sense? While still sort of coloring on the comforter in ways that I think nobody can notice. And that isn't what God's talking about in the scripture when he talks about rest. What we'll see here this morning is this invitation, this gift of rest that God invites us into. So let's begin. I mean, when we think about uh, the word Sabbath, uh, your mind probably goes to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, the fourth of the commandments is the idea to take a Sabbath day, to remember it and keep it holy. But the concept of rest actually begins before the giving of the Old Testament law. And when we talk about the practice of rest, I don't want you to think of it in terms of purely uh, coming to church on a Sunday. If you reduce it to just taking a Sunday and going to church, you've missed the point both of the Old Testament Sabbath and of the broader call to rest that Jesus initiates in his life and teaching. But we would go all the way back, actually, to the creation story. We would go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, after the six days of creation, on Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, on the seventh day, and you may know this already, but in Genesis chapter 2, God models for us a rhythm of rest. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, it's important to understand here, this is the idea of Sabbath. There are two, uh, two words in the Old Testament for rest. One of them is the word from which we get our word Sabbath. It's the word Sabbat. And that means, uh, literally, it just means stop, or it means cease, right? 
So what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 2, after the six days of creation, on the seventh day, we're seeing that God stopped. Don't be confused here. This doesn't mean that God was out of ideas. It doesn't mean that God was tired. It doesn't mean that God needed to catch his breath. It was an intentional point of stopping and looking at what he'd created and saying, this is what I intended to create and I am finished and it is good, right? He stopped, not because he needed to, not because he was uh, out of creative. I mean, he could have, that would have been a good opportunity for him to do the unicorn, which I think we all sort of wished he would have done, right? He, he takes a break here to picture something to us, to give us the type of stopping or ceasing, not out of desperation or need, but out of intentionality. But we also see the other idea of rest in this very same chapter. If you were to jump down to Genesis 2.15, when it talks about uh, the man. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, you'd read that verse and you wouldn't necessarily see anything about rest there. But the other idea or the other word for rest that comes up in the Old Testament is the word nuach in the Hebrew. That's N-U-A-K-H. We actually see that here in Genesis 2.15. In Genesis 2.15, the words in our translation that are translated, put him in the garden, put him in, is this word nuach, which means to dwell or to settle, right? When we get to Exodus chapter 20... In the giving of the law, right, when we see it in the fourth commandment, we'll see both of these words represented in in the Old Testament law. It will say, remember the Sabbath. There's that word sabbat, right? Remember the ceasing or the stopping. He says, because after the six days of creation, God nuach, God dwelled or he settled, right? So for us, the idea of rest, we talk about the practice of rest. We're talking, talking about an intentional stop and an intentional dwell, An intentional stop and an intentional dwell or to settle in, to reside. It says God put the man in the garden. He settled him in the garden. When we get all the way, we were studying Ephesians not too long ago. And of course, Ephesians is not written in Hebrew. But the idea in Ephesians, we were talking about the idea of the Lord Jesus settled down and at home in us, abiding in us, dwelling in us. Remember that when we studied it. The idea that Jesus wants to be at home in us, but there is also an invitation for us to be at home with God. The purpose of the garden was to be a dwelling place for God and man to reside together. And the tragedy of the fallenness of sin, not only is that death came to man, but that man was removed from that close dwelling or that close resting place with his creator. We think about the fact that death came to mankind as a result of the fall, but that didn't happen just strictly because of the disobedience. It happened because of the separation from God, who is life and light, right? The separation, sin separated them when they were meant to dwell with him. So we have this concept here in Genesis 2 of stopping and of dwelling. As we get to Exodus, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, we see the idea of, of, a, of a prescribed Sabbath rest. You work six days and you stop and you, you stop and you dwell on the seventh, right? Dwell in God's presence. And in fact, God took that very seriously in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you didn't observe a literal Sabbath day on the seventh day, which for them was Saturday, that was punishable by death. That's how serious God took this rest. Punishable by death. So God models it. He actually insists upon it in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law. But we sort of have to understand what was the, what was the point of that rest? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 5 gives us a little bit of a, of a hint at that as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, when, uh, when the writer there, Moses, is re-articulating the purpose of the Sabbath, listen to what he says. Deuteronomy 5.15. He says, 
you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Well, that's an interesting statement in in Deuteronomy 5.15. That you're commanded to remember the Sabbath. You're commanded to stop or to cease and to dwell. Why? For remembrance. To remember what? That you were delivered. That you were delivered from your enslavement, not by your own activity, not by your own striving, not by your own efforts, not by your own machinations or your own, your own thought processes. You were delivered by the mighty power of God and his outstretched hand. When we talk about the practice of rest today, the purpose is the same. The purpose of rest, as we see Jesus model it and teach it in the New Testament, is that we would stop from our strivings and all of our efforts and all of our work and all of our busyness. That we would cease from all of our doing and our getting, and instead we would remember that we have been delivered from all of that, not by our own efforts, not by our own practices, not by our own discipline, but by the mighty power of God and His outstretched hand in His saving work on the cross. Does that make sense? That's what the rest is for. The rest is that you would remember that you have been delivered. And when you remember you've been delivered, the light bulb comes on and you go, if I'm a child of God, not by my own striving and my own effort, why am I striving? Why am I putting forth so much effort? Why am I so worried? Why am I so agitated? Deuteronomy 5.15 says we do a Sabbath to remember we've been freed by the power of God and not our own power. Now, Jesus models Sabbath as well. He models rest as well. My favorite story of this is in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, the disciples and Jesus are traveling by boat because they're they're trying to get a little bit of a break, right? Trying to get a break from the crowd. And while they're in the boat, there's a, a powerful storm that sort of zooms in here. This is Mark 4, 35. It says, On that day... When evening had come, he said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, that's Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, right? Asleep on the cushion. What a, what a great picture. There's this powerful storm. Jesus goes, hey, let's take a boat trip, right? The disciples are like, okay, they're going to get away from the crowd. They go out on the water and this mighty storm rears up. Waves are crashing over the side of the boat. The boat is filling up and they start to panic. They look around for Jesus and guess where Jesus is? He's taking a little nappy poo, right? Jesus has decided to take a little break. It says he's curled up and sleeping on a cushion. I like that detail. That Jesus found a cushion and he's gone to sleep on on the cushion. He's sleeping in the middle of the storm, you guys. You ever feel like you're in a storm? You ever feel like the waves are crashing over the side of your boat? What what happens to your mind in those moments where it feels like the storm? Where, Where other people's opinions or the pressures at work or the pressures in your relationships or the stuff that's happening with the political system or the stuff that's happening with racism in our world or the stuff that's happening in your neighborhood. When those waves are threatening to crash over the side of your boat, what's your temptation to do? Is your temptation to go and find a cushion and take a little nappy poo? No, no, no. Your temptation is to go, how do we get all the water out of this boat? Why did we come out here on the water in the first place? I never wanted to be a sailor. What are we doing out here, right? You start to rethink all your choices. You start to figure out your options. You start to sort of evaluate whether or not you're a strong enough swimmer to get out of there, right? Well, that's what the disciples are doing as well. Jesus was sleeping in the boat. 
He was in the stern asleep on a cushion, verse 38, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Right? Why? Because their minds are running to, how do we save ourselves? How do we get out of this storm? How do we get out of this disaster? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. What that means is that it's not like the waves died down. It means that the, the water went to glass. Right? He says, knock it off. He basically gets, he picture Jesus like, guys, I was trying to take a little nap here, but uh, what's the problem? Oh, the storm. All right. Knock it off. Right? And the waves are still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? My question for you as you look at Mark 4, my question for myself is, was this the best time to take a nap? Probably not from a functional standpoint. Did Jesus know the storm was going to happen? I don't know. But it happened, and he's sleeping there. What's he doing? There's something intentional. What's he doing? He's demonstrating to them that in his presence, there need be no fear of the storm. That as long as Jesus is in the boat you're in, I should say as long as you're in Jesus' boat, how about that? As long as you're in Jesus' boat, who cares about wind and waves? Who cares about it? Because he's the master of those things. He's the power. So we see Jesus sleeping here in the midst of a storm. We also see in the Gospels, Matthew 14, Luke 5, uh, Mark 6. I could read Mark 6 to you because we're in the same book here. I'll just skip over two chapters. Mark 6.30 says, The apostles returned to Jesus and he told him, uh, he, he t- and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. The disciples report to Jesus, man, we've been so busy. There's so many people that need to be healed, so many people that need to hear the truth, so many people we've been working with. We haven't even had time to take a break. And Jesus goes, you have to. Come away, he says, to a desolate place and rest. If you look at the passage in Matthew, he says, come away to a desolate place and pray. What's the idea? You don't have to keep going and going and going and going. Yes, there are more people. I mean, even in Mark 4, which we just looked at, when Jesus gets in the boat to go to the other side, he doesn't go because the crowds are gone. He doesn't go because there's no more hungry people or no more sick people or no more people that want to ask him questions. He makes an intentional break to leave in the midst of the busyness. In some ways, because of the busyness. Why? To remind himself and to remind his disciples and to remind us by extension that realistically there's never going to be a day for you and me when all the work of the ministry is done. You know, every day that, I mean, I I work here at the church. I'm on on staff. I said that already. I, I get paid. I'm actually getting paid right now to do this thing. Isn't that weird, right? Part of my job is to preach God's word on a Sunday morning. So, but, but I'll tell you what, there isn't a day. When I go home tonight after the 5.30 service, 7 o'clock or whatever, when I go home, I won't go home in, in the peace and recognition that all the ministry is done or that all the hungry people in Fullerton are fed or that all the people who don't know Jesus have heard the gospel. In fact, every time I go home, I go home with the knowledge that there is more to do. So I don't go home because the work is done. I go home because God's work in this world is bigger than me and my part of it, right? I got a part. I'm doing part of my part right now. It's not all my part. But I make a choice to go home, not because it's finished, but because God's work is bigger than just my role. That's part of what this intentional calling away to rest, to stop, and to dwell is about. Jesus teaches it. He models it. But it's not idleness or inactivity. 
It's also not another form of legalism or striving. We've already talked about that. It's not, it's not about doing the Sabbath or making sure you uh, don't go to baseball games on Sunday or you never have a soccer practice on Sunday. When we reduce it to just like, hey, Sunday is a special day in which you shouldn't do anything. We've missed the point of what Jesus teaches. In fact, it's interesting. We studied the Sermon on the Mount not too long ago. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes all of the sort of moral Old Testament rules, things like don't murder and don't uh, commit adultery, and he actually makes them harder. You know how he makes them harder? By making them not just about murder and about sleeping around, but about having an intention of your heart that is lustful, or having an intention of your heart that is hateful. Jesus stretches out some of those moral principles, and he actually makes them more difficult to comply with because he stretches them out into the thought of intention and attitude. The one difference is with Sabbath. What we see of Jesus in the New Testament, in Matthew 12, and and in a couple of other places, in Matthew 12, Jesus doesn't make the Sabbath harder. He actually makes the Sabbath easier. He tends to be more liberal and lenient with regard to adherence to the Sabbath. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 12, and for the sake of time, we we don't have to read this whole story, but in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is walking through a field with his disciples on the Sabbath, and he, his disciples pluck some kernels of grain and they eat them. And the Pharisees see that and they go, hey, what's going on here? Why are your disciples breaking the Sabbath rule? You're not supposed to harvest any grain on the Sabbath, right? They look at him and say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus says in Matthew 12, uh, verse 3 and following, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he says here, he goes, eating grain on the Sabbath is not a violation of the Sabbath because... I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was always about drawing people to stop and be with me. And these people have stopped and are with me. Yeah, they're eating corn. Who cares? Right? So he stretches out in a different way. It's not about legalism. It's not about striving. It's about stopping and being in the presence of God. Dwelling in the presence of God. The the passage that we read at the beginning out of Matthew 11, which comes right before this story and the story of Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. So right before that in Matthew 11 is where he says, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. So to look at those verses again in Matthew 11, we read them at the beginning. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Then then the the author of the book here, Matthew, goes on to tell us these two stories, both about him eating the corn on the Sabbath and healing a man on the Sabbath. In essence, to say it's not about some sort of legal restriction. It's about stopping from your own striving and remembering again that you have been delivered by the outstretched hand and power of God of God, right? What Jesus invites us into in Matthew chapter 11 is to stop and dwell, to rest with him, not just once a week, not just on Sunday morning for 90 minutes or whatever, but I will say that once a week is a good place to start. Why, why is he so strict about the seventh day, the seventh day Sabbath in the old Testament? Well, he wants people to begin a practice. He wants them to understand that what we're actually leaning in is a life of Sabbath rest. 
not just a day of Sabbath rest, a constant abiding, stopping and dwelling in the outstretched arm and the power of God. You and I, we practice maybe one day a week. Maybe you get to a place where you practice a a Sabbath rest a couple of times a week. We'll talk about that more. But the goal is that we're working toward a place where we are always resting in the outstretched power and arm of God. It isn't just about a 24-hour period. It was never just about a 24-hour period. That was always practice. What, what, what do you suppose heaven will be, by the way? When you think about heaven, I know streets of gold and all the pizza you can eat and whatever, right? But when you think about heaven, can I just remind you that what heaven is, is a ceasing from your striving and a constant and eternal dwelling in the presence of God. The seventh-day Sabbath of the Old Testament and, and the drawing away to be in the presence of God, this, this soul rest that Jesus talks about, being in his presence, is practice for eternity in which we will not need to strive because we will be constantly reminded of the fact that it's his power and not ours that made us who we are. So this isn't just about a once-a-week thing. That's a fine place to start, but it's practice for a life of resting in Christ. The problem with this is that we live in a culture of restlessness. We live in a culture of restlessness. And just take, just take a minute and let your mind think about the advertisements you've seen this week. Every advertisement you see on the news, on television, on the billboards outside, every advertisement you see is doing what? It's designed to tell you you don't have enough. You haven't, you haven't, you haven't gathered enough stuff. You haven't accomplished enough. People, people are judging you because you're Clothes aren't cool enough or your haircut's not cool enough. You got, you got to work harder. You got further to go. If you buy this waffle maker, you'll be happy. If you take this incredibly inexpensive trip to Cancun, you will finally find some rest and some peace and some satisfaction. If you could just drive to this place and post these pictures on your Instagram, other people will finally think you're cool. If you're this kind of mom or you're this kind of dad or you're this kind of school teacher or you have these politics or you have this perception, you live in this kind of house, you drive this kind of car, what's the world constantly telling us? The world is constantly telling us, you can't rest because you haven't arrived. You don't have everything. There are people out there who think things about you that aren't true. There are people out there who judge you. There are people out there who have cooler stuff than you, who've accomplished more, who have better stuff on their resume than you. And so when you look at the billboards, when you watch the advertisements, I will tell you that social media, and you guys know I'm not a fan of social media, social media at its heart is designed to make you restless. It's designed to make you look at what other people have and what other people are doing and compare yourself and go, I should be doing that and I should have that and who I am is somehow insufficient because it does not compare. And so then we're driven to post pictures that are not entirely true to try and prove to other people that we've got it figured out, that we did it or we got it. And all of that doing and all of that getting leaves us unsatisfied. It's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about, by the way. The whole book of Ecclesiastes written by Solomon says, I have everything. I got it all. And I was unhappy. And people looked at me and they saw all the things I'd accomplished and all the things I'd done. And I was unsatisfied. That's why he says the eye is never full of seeing nor the ear full of hearing. We are insatiable. Why? Because you and I weren't designed to be satisfied by cars and boats and experiences and pleasure and other people's opinions. We weren't designed to be satisfied by any of those things. We were designed to be satisfied in dwelling in the presence of God who has called us his children. That's the only place we find rest. So here's what happens in our lives. And maybe some of you feel this. You strive, you work, you you put in all this time in your career. You work hard to manage other people's opinions. 
but you still feel sad. We, we took a trip to Joshua Tree a couple of weeks ago just to take a little break. And uh, the whole time I was there, my wife was like, do you, do you like the place we're staying in? You know, and I was like, it was nice, but it wasn't as good as the pictures on Airbnb. Right? And instead of just enjoying the place we were staying for all the things that were good about it, you see what was happening in my heart? I was comparing the photographs with the reality and feeling discontent. Why? Because that's what those photographs were designed to do. I was looking at other... While we're in Joshua Tree, I'm actually on Airbnb looking at other places we could have stayed. Right? Why? Because that's what those devices are designed to do, to make you constantly unsatisfied. So what do I do? Well, the next time I go to Joshua Tree, I'm going to work a lot harder to find a good place. I'm going to read a lot more reviews. I might spend a little more money so that when we go to Joshua Tree, we stay in a house that's just a little bit cleaner. But you know what? It won't be enough. It won't be enough. You're going to buy a little bit nicer car. You're going to buy a little bit better house. You're going to buy a little bit fancier clothes. You're going to work just a little bit harder this week. And you know what you'll find at the end of that? The same dissatisfaction that you had last week at the end of all that striving. Because you were not meant to be satisfied by that stuff, by the doing or the getting. You and I were meant to be satisfied by the presence of Christ and the confidence in His power and His outstretched hand. And we feel unsatisfied. And all that does is drive us back into trying to fix that dissatisfaction. That lack of peace, that restlessness. And you know how we try and fix it? We try and fix it with more striving. We try and fix it with more experiences, with more purchases, with more busyness, with more comparison, with more hoarding. We become increasingly anger and bitter and jealous and tired and lonely. And the cycle just keeps repeating. You feel frustrated and angry and bitter and jealous and all those things. And you think, if I just get a little bit more, if I just do a little bit more then I'll be fine. It's a lie. It's a cultural lie. More than that's a satanic lie. So why is it that God says to you, stop, stop and dwell with me? Because he knows we're going to live in a world that's going to say, oh, if you just had a little bit more, if you just did something else, if people just looked at you a little differently, you'd be happy. It's not true. Jesus says we're meant to love God and love others above all things. But how can we do that when we're burned out, angry, jealous, empty, tired, stressed, and frustrated? The reality is we can't. How often in interactions with other people have you found yourself being snappy or judgmental or cruel or unkind or hateful? Maybe not even in relationship with other people. Maybe just at a distance over and through the keyboard, right? You can't be loving and kind and peaceful and joyful and generous. You can't be the fruit of the Spirit when you're burned out and tired and exhausted and jealous and frustrated. So God says, stop and be with me. Cease from your striving. Uh, Psalm 46 famously says, be still and know that I am God. What's the invitation there? Be still and know it's my power that will satisfy you. I'm the one who stops and starts the wars. It says in Psalm 46, I'm the one who has this control. Stop Sabbath and dwell Nuach, with me. Rest or Sabbath, the practice of rest allows us, not allows us, requires us to release control. Does that sound scary? That you got to turn loose of control. you, you got to turn loose of control. In that boat with Jesus in the storm, they had to release control. But you know what? Here's the funny thing. Control was an illusion for them anyway. They didn't have any power over the storm. They didn't have any power over the waves. There was nothing they could do. So we get freaked out because we go, man, if I, if I rest, if I stop my striving and all of my doing and my getting, I, I'm going to have to turn loose of control. Guess what? The control you think you have is an illusion. You don't have any control. Right? 
But Sabbath causes us to, to turn loose of, of the control. It causes us to see that God doesn't need us. Now, don't, don't take this the wrong way. I, I want you to be very clear on the fact that God loves you and wants you. That God includes you. That he calls you his daughter and his son. That he's chosen you. That he's redeemed you. But he doesn't need you. Sometimes we get to this place, and maybe this is mostly true of people in vocational church ministry, but you get to a place where you start to think like, oh, if I'm not doing my job, the whole thing falls apart. That's just a satanic lie, right? God doesn't need us. And when you rest from your striving, you step back and you go, oh, it's like in spring training, it's like when a baseball player sits on the bench and they have an opportunity to step back and go, oh, I don't carry this team. There's, there is a coach and there are all these other things. For us, when we rest, we step back and go, oh, I'm not carrying this team. The outstretched hand and the power of God carry this team. Right? So it reminds us of our perspective. It reminds us of who we are. Sees that God, that God doesn't need us. It helps us to see that what God calls us to is not an obligation, but a gift. That he invites us into things, not because he needs us there, but because he wants us there. And that's different. It helps me to realize that I'm not my job. You feel like you're your job? You feel like you're your clothes or your car or your house? You feel like you're your resume? Taking a rest will help you step away and go, wait, 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 I'm, I'm not... Darren, who Darren is, loved by God, child of God, son of God, redeemed by the blood and resurrection of Christ. The fact that I'm a pastor at a church is secondary at best. Who I am is Jesus's redeemed son, right? And taking a break from striving and work helps us remember that we aren't our job. It helps us realize that we're not what we have, that we're not what we've done. It helps us to realize that none of our striving satisfies us. It helps us to recognize that others' perceptions of us are meaningless. Because what's the perception that matters? God's perception is the one that matters. And he calls you son. He calls you daughter. He calls you his own. It helps me to remember. Remember Deuteronomy 5. Taking a break helps me to remember that I've been set free. That I've been set free, not by my own work, not by all the good stuff I do at church or the good stuff I did in a Christian band or the good stuff I did when I worked at Hume Lake. But I've been set free and redeemed and chosen by no effort of my own. And therefore, the efforts that I put forth now, they don't make me more a child of God. They don't make me more loved. They don't make me more lovable. They don't earn me some sort of special status in the kingdom of God because I have everything. I'm a full heir by no power of my own. And taking a break reminds me of that. John 15, 4, Jesus says in John 15, 4, abide in me, or what, remain actively still in me. We study when we study the book of John. Rest in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The best thing that intentional rest, the practice of rest reminds us of is that we're incapable of doing anything of value apart from Jesus. And that it's really only when we stop and dwell with him that true fruit is produced. All that striving apart from, apart from him is worthless. When we rest in Christ, we practice satisfaction. We practice contentment. Think about that. We practice satisfaction. Why? Because if I stop from all my striving, I'm having to go, what I have is enough. What I've done is enough. Right? So we practice satisfaction. We practice contentment. We practice confidence and trust. Because I go, if I need more, or if there's something else I am to do, God will show me. God will deliver. God will provide. 
So we practice satisfaction, contentment, confidence, trust. We practice appreciation. And in those practices, then gratitude for God for all we have and all we are. Then we also start to blossom in peace. Because satisfaction and contentment, appreciation, gratitude, all those things are part and parcel of what it means to be a peaceful person. Peace and joy are the byproduct of stopping and dwelling in him. But our our world and even our churches have not adequately emphasized the importance of this practice. Because in a church, it can be easy to turn all of our practice into doing. How many Bible verses have you memorized? How many uh, Bible studies have you gone to? How many prayer meetings have you attended? It can turn into this legalistic, you know, check the box and get the prize. We have not adequately, we have sometimes to our own demise, emphasized the doing and the getting of spirituality instead of the being children of God. Right? So we have to move away from that. Like, like I would say sort of corporately as a, as a family, as a church, but also individually, we have to move away from that. We emphasize the stopping and the being a child of God. Hebrews 4, which we studied not too long ago, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11 talks about entering his rest. When the, when the Israelites got right up to the, to the point of the promised land, they'd been delivered from Egypt by the power and the outstretched hand of God. They get right up to the border of the promised land. And you remember what happens? They don't go in. They don't go in. And you know why they don't go in? Because they start looking at themselves. They go, we, we can't do it. Right? We can't, we can't get that land. We're not capable of getting it. We're not capable of beating them. We're not tough enough. The way they perceive us, they look at us like grasshoppers, and so we look at ourselves. What are they preoccupied with? They're preoccupied with the doing and the getting. And Caleb, one of the spies, goes, no, no, no. It's not about the doing and the getting. If God is with us, we will definitely be delivered there. What, what's he focused on? He's focused on being obedient, being the children of God. Stepping into the promise. And so the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 1 and following through verse 11 says, let's be careful that we don't fall into that same trap. The rest of God is available. The rest of God is available. Let's not miss the opportunity to enter into it is what the writer of the Hebrews says here. Let's not miss the opportunity to enter into it. Well, how do we enter into it? We enter into it through obedience. By stopping Sabbath. And dwelling with God. Nuach. How does this happen? What's the, functionally, what does it look like? Well, it's, we're talking about new rhythms, right? In all of this. Intentional time. If you're the kind of person who goes on a walk regularly, maybe for you, stopping and dwelling with God might be not walking one day a week and instead sitting at a desk somewhere and, and reading or listening. It can be eating a meal. It can be gathering with friends. It can be, here it is, you were waiting for it. I waited till the very end of the message. It can be taking a nap, Right? And you go, how can I be dwelling with God if I'm taking a nap? Well, are you, are you resting in confidence of the power of God and his work on your behalf instead of your own? Then that's a spiritual practice. And if you can't nap right now because you're so worried about all the things you need to do and all the stuff you want to get, that's satanic, right? That's of the devil. So some of these practices, go on a walk, take a nap, read, sing, pray, eat, love, spend time with your circle, Right? Get together with the people that you, that you have influence upon and, and share a meal. Get away. Find some quiet. Jesus himself says, let's get away from the crowd and find some solitude, right? Listen, I, I intentionally take a Monday every week for, uh, for a time of rest and quiet. I don't answer my email. If you've emailed me on Mondays, you don't hear back from me. I don't answer texts on Monday. I don't even carry my phone on Monday, right? Not that the phone is necessarily bad, although I could probably make that argument, 
But I don't want to engage. I don't need, and God doesn't need me to engage on Monday. It's a time of intentional rest. But you know what I do sometimes on my Sabbath? Play video games. Does that seem unspiritual to you? I can only play video games because I'm confident that God has this world and this church and my family under control. And so for me, playing video games is a Sabbath practice. Kids at home, write that down. Tell your parents I said it, right? But here's the thing. You, You will have to schedule it. You will have to schedule it. It might not be a bad idea even this morning for for you to grab your calendar and schedule it. Now, you might not be able to go to a full day of Sabbath, right? You might not be able to go to a full day of rest. But remember, one day is actually not even what we're aiming for long term. What we're aiming for is a life of stopping and dwelling in the presence of God, right? That's even something that can happen at your workplace if your head's in the right place. Think about that. But for right now, if you're just getting started, I would say... If you're not resting in the presence of God at all, schedule half a day this week. Schedule a couple of hours if you can't find half a day and and work up to it. Go on a walk. Take a break. Listen to the Spirit of God. Rest. Stop and rest. I'll finish with this. I desire to be the kind of man who, in the midst of the storms of life, doesn't freak out, doesn't shake my fist at God and say, Where are you? Are you going to do anything about this storm? I desire to be the kind of man, in understanding the practice of rest, I desire to be the kind of man who, in the midst of the storms of life, figures out where it is that Jesus is resting and moves toward him and then says, Hey, Jesus, would you scooch over just a little? And can I, can I sleep next to you here on your cushion? What if the story in Mark 4 had gone that way? What if in the midst of the wind and the waves, the other disciples had said, let's find cushions of our own, or let's see if we can find space on Jesus's cushion for us to lay our heads down as well. What Jesus invites us into is an intentional and a purposeful stopping from all of our efforts and a remembrance of the power of God on our behalf to step away from the doing and the getting and to embrace being children of God and dwelling in his presence. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us uh, a motivation, uh, um, uh, the courage, uh, what, whatever, the, the, the get up and go. I can't think of a good word for it. But, but that you would stir in us a desire not to walk away and immediately forget what we've seen here. As James talks about in his book, it's so easy to hear a principle like this and go, oh, that's interesting, and not do it. God, will you help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only? that we would not fail to enter into your rest. Practice for eternity, the kingdom of God come, a little taste of heaven where we are dependent and confident in you in the here and now. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.